Well, good afternoon. I'm very uh, grateful and, and honoured to be invited to do three sessions with, with folks here on the parables. This is the last of the three. Some of you will be relieved to hear. And I thought a good one to finish with in this uh, week of Advent when the church traditionally um, thinks about preparing for the coming of Christ, uh, whether first coming or second coming, this was a particularly good and interesting parable. Though it's one of the hardest ones, one of the hardest of Jesus' stories to understand and to apply to today for a number of reasons. When I was a boy in Liverpool uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, used to go shopping with my parents and regularly on the busy street corners of the shopping area there were men wearing sandwich boards. Don't see many of those these days. The older among us may remember that that was a form of evangelism. Uh, I'm not sure how effective it was, it rather made people a laughing stock, but I think they were sincere and they were trying to get a message across. And the most common uh, slogan on a sandwich board that people wore was prepare to meet thy God. Not a terribly positive gospel message, but as a preliminary to the gospel, possibly quite good. And in some ways, it's, it's the traditional church message for Advent. Prepare to meet God. Whether we're thinking of God coming at Christmas or, or whether we're thinking of the second coming, the final judgment, our own deaths, whatever. Advent traditionally in, in church terms is, is a very good reminder of the biblical requirement that we should be preparing to meet our God. That might sound a little bit solemn and heavy for a, a Tuesday lunchtime, in which case I'm sorry, but, but I'm not, because Jesus is quite keen on preparing for meeting God. And we've got some of that in, in this parable. He's hinting at it. If you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? In other words, in some way, how we live in this life has an effect on how we'll be treated in the next. That's what he's talking about, worldly wealth on the one hand, true riches on the other. This life as a test, a preparation, a challenge, preparatory to the next life. Similarly, if you've not been trustworthy, trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And again, he's, he's talking in a slightly elliptical way, but talking uh, quite clearly about judgment and what lies beyond, and that our behaviour and our living here and now has an effect on what's next. And again and again in Jesus' teaching, the here and now is really important. I've come that you may have life in all its fullness, but also it's only preparatory. And that's part of the big message of, of Advent and, in fact, of the whole Christian gospel, that this life is a preparation for the next. This isn't the main event. The main event is what happens when we do meet our God. And that context is really important as we come to this, this difficult story. It's difficult because the hero is crooked. And when you get a crooked hero, you may like that sort of novel or film, 
There's something uh, quite intriguing about uh, the, the crooked hero, but it's a little bit worrying on the lips of Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is very important. Story that, as with many of Jesus' parables, uh, the, the first character, the rich man, is a picture of God. There's a rich man who has a manager, a steward, who manages his estate, his farm, his lands, his income, his investments, doesn't matter what it is, who manages his affairs. And we're all immediately put into that place. We're all here as stewards of something that belongs to God. And what belongs to God is our life, our possessions, our relationships, our money, our resources, everything, this world. Everything we have belongs to God and we are stewards. From the time of Adam and Eve put in, in, in the, the Genesis story to manage the garden and then to manage the earth. We are stewards or managers. And Jesus challenges with a story about a manager or a steward, which is all of us. And his management has gone a bit wrong. He's accused of wasting the master's possessions. We don't know the detail, incompetence, embezzlement, this, that and the other, who knows. But he hasn't managed well what's been entrusted to him. That could be us as well. It could be. And the manager's worried. He doesn't want to lose his job because he isn't capable of manual labour, which would be a step down from management, and he doesn't want to beg. And there's not much else open to him if you can't get decent references. What will he do? So he's going to use wealth to make friends. Before he gets the sack, he's going to abuse a bit more his master's resources in order to make sure he's got some friends when he's laid off. And of course, there was no dole in those days. And he calls two of them in, two of the people who owe his master money, and says, how much do you owe my master? It's very clear it is his master's money he's dealing with, not his own. He's not saying, how much do you owe me? I'll let you off. Will you be my friend and be nice to me when I get the sack? He's saying, how much does my, do you owe my master? In other words, I'm prepared to diddle my master out of a bit more to make friends with you. He's utterly corrupt. He may have the legal right to reduce the bill, but he certainly hasn't got the moral right to, to fiddle more money away from his master from whom he's already lost money. But he does it. He makes friends of these two people by reducing their bill, whether the bill is in, in met metric or imperial or whatever terms. And we're told, as we hear the story with a little bit of horror at someone who's corrupt becoming even more corrupt, the master commended him because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. A strange thing for Jesus to say, he's saying, Religious people, good people, people who know God, sometimes are so unearthly, unreal, unworldly, that they don't know how to operate in this world. And Jesus is saying sometimes to those with high principles, get real, live in the real world. 
That's a difficult message. It's not a message the church has ever been any good at proclaiming. And when the church tries to say, get real, live in the real world, it loses its bearings and its moorings. And, and we know when politicians try to live in the real world, sometimes the, the moral compass can go awry a little bit. It's almost inevitable. But there is a commending of the dishonest manager because he's acted shrewdly. And then the real punchline comes in, in the readings, in the, in the reading, in verses 10 to the end, or verses 9 and 10 to the end. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. And it's that little phrase, worldly wealth, I want to stick on for a moment. You may remember it if you were brought up on the authorised version as I was, as the mammon of unrighteousness. Uh, in uh, probably the most common Bible version in use today, it's dishonest wealth. But the word is mammon, which doesn't just mean money, it means all your possessions, everything of which you're a steward, all your resources of any kind. Mammon and literally unrighteousness, mammon of unrighteousness. How do we translate that? Well, dishonest wealth, worldly wealth, Worldly doesn't have a, a, an ethical, a negative ethical feel to it, which unrighteous certainly does. I'm not sure worldly wealth is strong enough. It probably should be unrighteous wealth, or as my grandmother used to call it, filthy lucre. But it's the same thing, isn't it? Why does Jesus talk about wealth and money as unrighteous? That's a real challenge. Uh, money is a big part of government. It's a big part of politics. It's how the world goes round and it's how affairs are managed. Can we say money is unrighteous? What does Jesus mean by that? It could be that he's saying certain sorts of money are unrighteous, that in some way this is corrupt money that the steward is dealing with and that makes it unrighteous. It doesn't I'm sure he doesn't mean that because he's, he's making a generalization out of this story. He's describing mammon as unrighteous. Mammon as not being clean. Now that's a huge challenge. We live in a world where capitalism is taken for granted, but capitalism has in a sense proved itself against various other sorts of economic theory. We hope mild, moderated, uh, gentle, benevolent capitalism rather than capitalism that's totally fierce. But capitalism, like democracy, is kind of the best thing we've come up with at the moment. Might be something better around the corner, but we're not sure there is really. And yet Jesus talks about wealth as in itself unrighteous. What a huge challenge that is. If, if you or I put money of our own aside each week or month, I trust we do, to give to the Lord's work, to Christian charity, to supporting the church, is that unrighteous money that we're using for his sake? What a deep, deep question. Jesus is talking about using worldly wealth and resources with shrewdness, with discernment. 
sometimes in ways that may not be entirely comfortable. He's saying basically that money is tainted, can't not be, because it's handled by people. And the systems, the ways in which wealth is created, the ways in which money is earned, are never pure. They can't be. Because it's human systems. There's no perfect employment practice. There's no perfect wealth creation. Let's stop pretending if we think there is. Jesus says, okay, it's unrighteous. We're in a world and the world is to some extent sinful, corrupt, broken, damaged, unclean, unrighteous. Live there, live in that world, get on with it. But make sure you don't let that world, fallenness, brokenness, mammon, dominate your thinking. Make sure that you use unrighteous mammon for good. Make sure that you use it to make friends. Make sure that you use it for good political ends. Make sure you use it for good charitable ends. Don't worship money, don't accumulate it, don't let money be the end in itself. Don't let, I'm straying into politics but not wanting to, don't let economic success be the goal let it be good handling of money for good purposes as the goal, the common good as the goal, not the acquisition of more and more. Growing rich has no benefit, no value, because riches are unrighteous. Using riches for good purposes is what has value. In charity law, they say charities shouldn't accumulate funds, they're given to be spent. Charities should spend funds, not accumulate them. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't accumulate the funds, but use them for good purposes. Otherwise, you'll be trying to worship money as well as God. Use it. Don't stash it. I think that's the principle. And that's something on which we're judged our use of resources, our use of time, our use of life, our use of friendships, our use of money. May we know the Lord's goodness and forgiveness and that he alone is righteous and that righteousness comes as a free gift through Jesus Christ, not through the accumulation of wealth. Amen.